welcome everybody to Health or Consequences, the Massachusetts Health Policy Podcast of Mass Inc. and Commonwealth Magazine. I'm John McDonough from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, your co-host, along with Dr. Paul Haddis from the Lown Institute. And we have a monthly podcast where we invite guests to talk about what's going on on the health policy scene in Massachusetts. Today, we are thrilled and delighted to welcome back for the third time, uh, Mary Lou Sutters, the Secretary of Health and Human Services. She has served in that role for the past eight years, the whole Baker administration. She is the longest serving Secretary of Health and Human Services in the history of such secretaries, which goes back to about 1970, give or take. And she previously served as Commissioner of Mental Health. She was the executive director of the Mass Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, a professor at the Boston College School of Social Work, lots and lots and lots else. She is arguably the best health and human service secretary ever in Massachusetts history, inarguably among the best because her boss, Charlie Baker was once health secretary too. So it gets a little touchy there. But anyway, we are gonna dive in with Mary Lou Sutters. Mary Lou, thank you so much for joining us. This is kind of your exit interview and we're happy you could join us today. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Paul. It's uh, my exit interview only according to you apparently. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to talk about health. So I just wanna remind everyone, I am Secretary of Health and Human Services. So I don't want listeners to think I'm shortchanging the extraordinary importance of human services as part of my enterprise. Absolutely, thank you. So looking back over eight years as the leader of health and human services in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, do you have one or two accomplishments that just kind of stand out as this is something that I'm so proud of, I should be remembered for this? And do you have any one or two matters that maybe if you had the chance, you might like to do a little bit of a redo on them? <laughs> Well, after eight years, I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of redos people would want me to uh, talk about. But in terms of accomplishments, first of all, we're all works in progress. And as you both know, this work is never complete. But I think one that um, people often overlook is that when I was announced in 2014, I think some of the early appointments we made, both within the secretariat and across agencies, were just stellar public servants, uh, subject matter experts uh, with strong interpersonal skills, uh, because this is really complicated work, complex work, people's lives. If you think about like Dan Sai, who I appointed um, as assistant secretary and our Medicaid director, now he's running Medicaid policy for the country. I, I didn't know it at the time, of course. Monica Burrell, right, had been the chief medical officer at Healthcare for the Homeless, Commissioner of Public Health. I think people would say I appointed people within the secretariat who were, again, really strong in subject expertise, but really, really strong interpersonal skills. Luis Gutierrez, right, when I became the chair of the board of the Health Connector. Look at what existed in 2014 at the Health Connector and where we are today. And for the governor and for me, you know, people are policy, right? I'm 56, 57% of state government. 
And I understand that I am the secretary and I am ultimately responsible, but it's also the people who you appoint that you hold accountable. Um, and I, I don't I don't think we acknowledge what they did and what they've accomplished, you know, of course, under my, you know, leadership management thumb, whatever word you might like to use. Uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about the Medicaid waiver and uh, having negotiated too. So I will, I'd like to just talk about that and the significance of the waiver. But the other thing is when I came in, and again, I'm going back like the eight years, you know, Medicaid was talked about as the budget buster. You know, if, if you didn't control the Medicaid budget, nothing else would matter because it was so big and so large. And if you fast forward at this bookend, we don't talk about Medicaid that way in the Commonwealth anymore. We talk about it as a very important public insurance program with strong internal controls, right? So that the now 2.3 million people because of the public health emergency that need Medicaid, right? It is seen as a strong public insurance program. And the words that we used about talking about it in 2014 and you know, cutting benefits and the like, the reality is we've expanded the benefits in the mass health program. And if I can just sneak one in, which I don't think people will remember, I do, because it was an uh, interesting discussions internally in the administration. In 2019, Governor Baker declared a public health emergency around vaping. And we were the first state in the country using a governor's public health order and then a temporary ban and then legislative action. We were first in the country. And you know, I, I think those over time, people are like, oh, well, of course. But in 2019, that was a controversial issue, both within our administration, you know, businesses, what's the effect on, you know, small business people and the like, but it was the right public health thing to do. I know you said I only had two. Um, and then the other ones are the work we did on opioids. Again, these are works in progress uh, and behavioral health. I used to say, you know, we used to be politically correct in how we talked about stigma around addictions and, and mental health. But I really, I, I really truly believe now that when we talk about health, we talk about behavioral and physical health care together. You know, redos, there's lots of things, um, you know, a pandemic interrupted a lot of what we wanted to do in terms of making progress around addictions, behavioral health, low threshold housing, moving the Medicaid program uh, even more forward and some very important public health initiatives that were just interrupted. And, you know, you lose that momentum uh, because of the pandemic. Okay, thanks. Let me turn it to my host, Paul, my co-host, Paul Addis. Secretary, thank you for reminding us of all the things you were working on until the pandemic hit. But I'm going to ask you a little bit about the pandemic, where you were here before it started. You've been here through it all. In fact, your role even evolved from the secretary to the official numero uno point person for all of COVID effort in the whole state um, that Governor Baker asked you to do. So sitting here now at this point of the pandemic, wherever we're at, maybe it's going to become endemic soon, not called a pandemic anymore, we shall see. But what lessons have state leaders, including yourself and or the governor, learned that's worth sharing with their audience today? And in addition, 
Are there any things that you worry about could be forgotten, you know, from things learned at earlier points of the pandemic, uh, either to maybe affect what could happen this winter or future pandemics, what have you? So your thoughts there. Thank you, Paul. Um, well, as you both know, because we talked about it before, I am a worrier by uh, inclination. So I, I do I do worry. This is part of my my nature. Um, some of the lessons, and you know, I, I was reading Dr. Fauci had an op-ed in the New York the Sunday Times, which actually I saw as a message of hope. But embedded in his in his piece, which is one I also take to heart, is it's very important for leaders in those moments to speak clearly, honestly, transparently, to admit what you know, right? In that forthright way and not in public health lingo and not to be disparaging, but I mean, I still like bivalent boosters really. Couldn't we just say boosters, updated boosters, right? But in ways that the public can take in and understand and admit what you don't know. I remember the, I think it was a hundred days, every day of press conferences of on occasion, even the press, you felt the anxiety from people and the press saying, you know, but you're not telling us. And we're like, no, we don't know this factor. And, and being comfortable with making decisions based on incomplete data and being honest about that. And, you know, that's, that's uncomfortable, right? All of us want the very best data, having the perfect data, the perfect information to sift through to make the best public policies. But in a pandemic or in a crisis, you have to be able to pivot and you have to be able to, you need to be comfortable using good data, but it's not the best data. And to be honest about that, I think that may sound simple, but when it's, you're being flooded, in those moments, uh, I actually counted up how many public health orders and governor's orders we made in those first three months. And even for me now, we did how many? I mean, think of it, telehealth on a dime. Controversial, but I have no regrets uh, engaging with partners in health in those early days of contact tracing. For me though, the lesson is communication, messaging clearly to the public uh, and be able to absorb people's anxiety, which is what we did. What I worry about is that people are so tired, right? We're, we're over COVID, but we're not over COVID because COVID zero is not possible, right? Managing COVID is possible. And you see it now in our Commonwealth. Yes, the cases are going up. We see this in December, um, but we have the tools to manage COVID rather than COVID managing us. We have testing, we have rapid antigen tests, we have therapeutics, um, right? We understand more about uh, what COVID is. We have vaccines that work and they work against severe hospitalization and death. The messaging in the beginning was just not accurate, right? That it would prevent you from getting COVID. Well, you may, you'll get, you may get some, COVID, but- Here's your corollary yep, go ahead. question. Early on in the pandemic too, you and the governor were instrumental in getting not only communication, but our hospital system to work together in trying to deal with, with potential bed and surge capacity. Um, are you confident that system will remain intact going forward uh, with other challenges or not? Well, there's no question 
that our healthcare system acted in a, in a, in a collective. And what I've seen, um, and then as things relaxed, right, we opened, right, we needed to reopen elective surgeries and because of all the deferred care that had happened, we became competitive again, or more competitive. What I've seen most recently as we have had bed crunches across the Commonwealth, that there's been much more uh, collegiality uh, among the hospitals, again, on load balancing and sharing information. The, the hospital CEOs and I uh, meet every other week, again, on, on those issues of workforce capacity, behavioral health, ED boarding, and the like. So I do think, I think that's something we have to nurture and support going forward. Let's turn to Mass Health Secretary Sutter. So you engineered and got federal approval for the most substantial redo of the Massachusetts Medicaid program, at least since the 1990s, when uh, Charlie Baker engineered the first, when he was uh, Secretary of Administration and Finance. You created 17 new accountable care organizations that are covering over a million people right now in the Mass Health program. Just bottom line, it's, it's a, it was a breathtaking effort that the public doesn't recognize at all. What was achieved there, do you think, in terms of cost control and in terms of quality of care for the enrollees? What did we get for it at the bottom line that matters most? What matters most is that the 1.2 million people who are enrolled in accountable care organizations uh, we are knitting together the social determinants of health within healthcare. And I'll, I'll do, I'll speak a little bit more about that at the end. Um, but the early indications are pretty good, John. We've strengthened member connections to primary care. You know, a lot of people had a Medicaid card and were assigned a primary care physician, but it didn't really make a connection, if you would. You still ended up in the emergency room for your primary care. So in the ACO program, it's 12% higher than for the non-ACO. Uh, that was the early data when we first started to roll out the ACOs. Uh, they were reducing preventable acute utilization, avoidable uh, admissions by 11%. Again, this is in the early days. Uh, improving clinical quality, so member satisfaction. I'm, I'm a big believer in member satisfaction. It's one thing for me to say it's fine, but as a client, a service recipient, how do I feel? Uh, that's much stronger than for people who are in the, the rest of the Medicaid program. And that the community partners have been successful in engaging members with complex behavioral health and long-term services. You too, and it might be hard to explain this to people who don't live in, you know, the, in the world of speaking Medicaidese, the mass health risk adjustment methodology accounts for social complexity and risk in our ACO rates. So we, um, you know, the issue of um, risk adjustment is very important in the mass health um, because we don't, we want to address equity uh, and disparities in care. And one of the levers to do it is through risk adjustment. So it evolves, right? It was new, it was big, it was bold, scary for, um, you know, change is hard and change as we come out of a pandemic is hard for folks, but we are, we successfully negotiated. This is my second waiver. Um, and this one was so much about policy and not politics. Um, you know, the history of the Medicaid waivers, there was always a fair amount of politics around them, but this one has equity at its core. 
both systems and the state as a whole will be measured on equity. One. Two, we really, we're providing whole health for people, really bringing in the social determinants within healthcare, which I feel is so important. Uh, building on behavioral health and investing in our community health centers, uh, a historic investment in our community health centers and our safety net hospitals in this waiver. So it's a, it's a $67 million package for the Commonwealth. And it, it's one that we should watch and evaluate. And there might be lessons for outside of the uh, mass health program, particularly around risk adjustment, if we mm -hmm. want to really address disparities. So the original iron law of these special Medicaid waivers or programs was that they had to cost no more or less than the status quo program. Do we know enough yet to say that this accountable care structure actually saved money in the Medicaid program, or is the jury still out on that? It hasn't cost more. So we, we, we have met the cost neutrality standards. Um, and I think as we continue the path of you know, the refinement of the ACO model, I think as if we can continue to prevent uh, avoidable hospital admissions and really make the connections with primary care and address social determinants, I think you will see the cost trend um, decrease. Secretary, with the 110% about risk adjustment methodologies and social determinants, so, so thank you, thank you for that. And the state was a was a pioneer in that in the Medicaid program. Let me turn to something else though that um, ties into the federal government, and it has to do with the fact that you and Governor Baker back in 2017. Seems hard to think back that time period, but I but I think it's still fresh in my mind when. Ultimately, John McCain went to the well of the Senate and put his thumbs down to vote no to stop the, the Senate from uh, overturning the uh, Affordable Care Act. But you and Governor Baker worked very hard, uh, called behind the scenes in many ways, to help make that happen. What was that like for you working with state leaders, cross parties, uh, and at, in that time really to undermine what was the key political objective of really at least in the healthcare arena, President Trump and congressional Republicans. 2017 does sound like a long time ago. It was an extraordinary opportunity to work in a very bipartisan fashion um, with other states. I mean, there were some very public letters. Uh, editing with a whole number, with a lot of other states ended up in one of those very interesting experiences on wordsmithing. And in the, in the very early days, it was around building trust with other states who have, you know, different experiences around Medicaid, different, their ecosystems are different and the like. But uh, the governor was very clear, our work had to be bipartisan. There were a lot of things we might not agree on, but what we agreed on was that the fundamentals in the Affordable Care Act needed to be protected. And that rolling back Medicaid expansion in our state um, was just not a possibility. It was just not something that we could fathom. And so setting aside differences and finding the common path was invigorating, quite honestly. Um, it was, you know, to me, it's like public policy and politics at its best, finding common ground. And then I worked with someone who you both know well, uh, Rob Restuccio. So Rob and I, in addition to working with states, uh, governors to governors and secretaries to secretaries, I was, uh, Rob and I stayed very close on what he was hearing from other states, other states that we were working with that he might be partnering in the like. 
And it was when John McCain went onto the floor, thumbs down, uh, was a very defining meaning. And it was, you know, it, it's part of who we are in Massachusetts. We also, though, as you both know, you know, New England is, and the governor talks about this, uh, you know, we don't look like lots of other parts of the country. And so we needed to find the words and the path with other gov with governors that didn't take the Massachusetts cultural west or south, right? But to find, to agree on what was core in the ACA uh, and that we aligned on. And I, I hold those letters because to me that was politicians showing courage and reaching across party lines for what is very important for people. And we can all agree that the Affordable Care Act, like all laws, big complicated laws are not perfect, but the core of them, and John knows this better than anybody having been a legislator and working on the Affordable Care Act, it was just far too important to roll back. So thank you for asking that. Yeah, I try certainly. to keep my role sort of a little underground because it's really about governors stepping up. It's really great. Yeah, but we knew. <laughs> right. We, 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 we knew. It's, it's a great image for John and I. We hope our listeners to think of the consummate consumer advocate, Robert Stusha, working with the Secretary of the Commonwealth on really a, a, a national communications and policy strategy. That, has, that won't happen in very many places. So let me, let, me, let me move you to another hat that you've worn for a number of years, even, even predating your uh, uh, being the Secretary, which is you served on the Massachusetts Health Policy Commission Board really till its in, in, uh, entire existence. Um, and the debate in that commission about how best to lower overall spending and whether to what degree that involves a, a heavier hand for government with respect to providers and provider prices has been at least part of the conversation. Where's your head today on the issues of government regulation versus the market to solve some of these, both whether it's affordability or pricing and related challenges? So yeah, it's true. I'm in, I, uh, you and I uh, were in, inaugural members uh, of the Health Policy Commission. I was appointed as the behavioral health expert by the Attorney General, uh, and it's been a privilege to be of service in that role. And you know, then is in the ex officio capacity. So let me let me take it the macro level. Every ten years or so in Massachusetts, I'm not really doing the math. You all can do the math better than I can. We're bold in our state. And I think uh, some of the lessons from the pandemic and are such that it is time for uh, the administration, the legislature, uh, consumer advocates and the like really come back to the table on major healthcare reform. And it has everything to do with the balance of free market and regulation, price controls, price caps on certain procedures and uh, certain providers. We've had a number of commission reports that have very good pieces of documentation. And I, I do think it is time for us to sit at the table from everything from drugs, drug pricing, to the role of the Health Policy Commission, the structure of the Health Policy Commission, the tools that the commission has, uh, the role of the executive branch, the, the DO, I mean, for me, it's the DOM bill, the enabling statute to 24, uh, and, the essential services mm. bill that were passed in the early 90s, which there's no teeth 
other than having the essential services hearing. Just explain this for closing of services that might be deemed essential and, and what process one would have to go under. Right, right. And the process is uh, essentially the only teeth the Department of Public Health has is to hold a hearing. And once the hearing is held and a plan is filed, then um, the service essentially can close. And yes, the Attorney General or others could take action. But at that point, you've gone down the path of closure. So um, in all of that, um, what I would, uh, the legislature passed a, a significant mental health bill, the ABC bill this year. Um, our other reforms of the past few years have been um, important, but not core to the issue um, of cost, access, quality, and equity. If there's, there's no silver linings of a pandemic other than hopefully it's a once in a lifetime event, but we should use this moment and galvanize it and see it. To me, that is the policy opportunity to come back to the table and address healthcare costs in the Commonwealth. And I, and I have some strong opinions about it, as you can tell. One more cost related question deals with uh, prescription drugs. So you spent a significant amount of time pushing the envelope to try to allow mass health to have a more a solid role in terms of holding down drug prices. And you were successful in getting those levers at your disposal. Have you learned anything from that experience over the past several years that would uh, inform the federal government, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, as they start to look at working toward negotiating with drug companies over uh, drug prices? So first of all, let me start with the good news in Massachusetts. And I'm very grateful, um, one, for the governor to propose and for the legislature to give us the authority to directly negotiate um, with uh, the manufacturers in the Commonwealth. And so let me just give you, because this is one of those, like, even for me, you know, when you go like, wow. Um, so we have maintained flat post-rebate growth since we've started our negotiations. If I use, and, and I'll send you if you want to see the chart. Hep C, if you it all, really all started around Hep C. Um, if we go back to 2017, Paul and John, yeah. and Hep C, our, the drug negotiations reduced the post-rebate price by 60% and saved nearly $100 million in 2018 alone. Um, in 2019, we were authorized the direct negotiations, and we have saved like $300 million a year while more drugs have come to market. So you can manage drug prices, maintain consumer access, not impact research and development in a positive way. And my worry is that what I have been hearing from the federal government and what's happening on the Medicare side actually will have a negative impact on national Medicaid policy. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think there are lessons if the federal government um, is interested in learning from states like Massachusetts. Uh, and I'm worried because the headwinds are significant and I have it here somewhere. So the median launch price in 2008, so that means bringing a drug to market was $2,000 per utilizer. And that was 40, 24 drugs approved. In 2021, it's 180,000 per utilizer for 50 
drugs approved. So the headwinds are significant and we can provide drugs available as we've demonstrated in the Medicaid program for consumers at much more reasonable costs. And I would, in Massachusetts, if nothing else, John, um, as part of a comprehensive cost uh, strategy, we need to really take on drug pricing as well as managing the pharmacy benefit managers, the PBMs. Thank you. So we are just about out of time. So regretful because there's so much to talk about. We could talk for three hours with you easily. Um, my last question was gonna be, what's next for Mary Lou but Sutter's, but um, I do have to notice it's mid-December. Um, there's been no information at all about Governor-elect Healy's nominee or intentions regarding health and human services. Is it possible you might be sticking around after January 3rd as secretary for some period of time or even maybe uh, a permanent appointment? Uh, can you share anything with us at this point without getting yourself into trouble? Um, John, I'm here till I'm not. And um, I would say- and we can quote you on that. <laughs> you, quote, you can quote me on that. And gov Governor-elect um, Healy and Lieutenant Governor-elect Driscoll, uh, uh, you know, are engaged in transition. There's been, there have been uh, meetings and discussions and the like. Uh, and I think uh, what I can assure you is this transition um, will be very smooth um, and as, as we expect from democracy, right? It's the transition of power and policy and practice and people uh, because that is what residents of the Commonwealth expect of us. So it's, it's going, the transition's going well. So whatever will happen next will happen next, but we, Paul and I are allowed to salute you and thank you for eight years of terrific service mm -hmm. in your role regardless. And if you stick around, for another eight years, I'll sign up for that anyway. Um, so Mary Lou Sutter, Secretary of Health and Human Services, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, on behalf of Paul Haddison, me, we wanna thank our listeners for tuning in. We'll be back next month. And uh, thank you all for joining us today. Thank you so much. Take care, good holidays. Thank Stay you, safe. Secretary. Thank you.